I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Zandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we're going to talk about UFO encounters, but some, if not all of these encounters, resulted in deaths or disappearances. So these aren't your basic, I saw a UFO, it flew past me, it was weird. We're going to get way more into it than that. But before we get to that, it's time for Paranormal News, and unfortunately... And I'm sure you all know this already, but recently we lost the main reason I wanted to do this podcast. Art Bell, the phenomenal host of Coast to Coast and Midnight in the Desert and so many other things, passed away. If you've never listened to Art at all, please do yourself a favor. After you listen to this podcast, go to YouTube and listen to the best of Art Bell episodes that are on there. It is some of the most intriguing incredible hours of paranormal radio you'll ever hear. Art was amazing. He was astounding. He was incredible. He got the best guests. He got the best out of those guests. And sadly, he's moved on to the other side. Also, kind of connected to Art Bell, it appears there might be a spot open because Heather Wade, who took over for Art Bell on Midnight in the Desert, said that uh, she has decided not to continue on with the show. So I'm putting it out there now because that's what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to put that stuff out into the universe. Well, I'm putting it out in the universe now. I would love to host Midnight in the Desert, Coast to Coast, whatever paranormal show you will let me host. I'd love to do it. I would love to make this my job. But let's move on to a little bit different paranormal news for you guys. If you were in Wall Township, New Jersey on St. Patrick's Day and thought you saw some triangular lights in the sky, you weren't alone. Jeff Wallace, who is 43, of Wall Township, said that he was driving to pick up his stepdaughter from the quick check on Belmar Boulevard that Saturday night when he observed three lights in a triangular pattern quote, moving very slowly, unquote, across the sky. Now, he showed the photos to the nearby naval base, and they said they didn't know what it was either. There was nothing like it that they had on that base or in the skies that night. So what did he see? Your guess is as good as mine, because we may never know. So that about wraps it up for Paranormal News. Before we get into tonight's episode, I really, really, really want to do a shout-out. I really want to do a couple of shout-outs, actually. First and foremost, Laura, thank you so much for being the first patron on my Patreon page. And it is patreon.com slash paranormal almanac. Find us on there. There's going to be a lot of fun stuff that is going to be exclusive to the patrons. And as the community grows, I'm going to do more and more stuff on there because I would really like to thank and give a lot back to the people that are really supporting me. So, Laura, thank you so much for your support. And also, Daniel, thank you so much for your support. I want to thank you both. Again, please go on over to Patreon. 
you guys doing this kind of thing, sharing the show, telling your friends about the show, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes and anywhere you get your podcast is phenomenal. But also going on to Patreon and giving what you can every month will help me to get better equipment, go on better investigations, and hopefully do a better show for you guys. I love doing it. I hope you guys appreciate it. All righty, that stuff's out of the way. Let's get to the first story for tonight. And we have a really weird and sad one, actually. This first story starts on the evening of November 23rd, 1953, when Air Defense Command ground intercept radar operators at Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, my home state, identified a very unusual target near the Sioux Locks. They immediately scrambled a F-89C Scorpion jet from Kinross Air Force Base to intercept and investigate what they saw on the radar. Now, that airplane was piloted by First Lieutenant Felix Moncla, M-O-N-C-L-A, I'm assuming it's Moncla, along with Second Lieutenant Robert L. Wilson, I'm pretty sure about that one, and not surprisingly with UFOs, as you guys know, Wilson had a difficult time tracking the object on the Scorpion's radar, so ground radar operators gave Moncla verbal directions towards the object as he flew. Now, they eventually closed in on the object at about 8,000 feet in the sky. Ground control tracked the Scorpion and the UFO as two, quote, blips on the radar screen. The two blips on the radar screen grew closer and closer together until they seemed to merge. Now, they assumed that Moncla had flown either under or over the UFO. Ground control anticipated that moments later, the Scorpion and the object would again appear as two separate blips. Donald Kehoe, who was there, reported that there was a fear that the two objects had struck one another, but the single blip just continued on its previous course. Now, many attempts were made to contact Moncla via radio, but to no success. A search and rescue operation by both the United States Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force, you got to remember this is Michigan up towards the top, they both were quickly mounted, but failed to find a trace of the plane or the pilot's. Weather conditions were a factor in hampering the search, so there was bad weather either during or right after this encounter. Officially, the U.S. government has said that the UFO was simply a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47, but here's the problem. They say that Moncla did not collide with the C-47, so if there was no collision, where is the supposed C-37, and also, where's the scorpion that was flown by Moncla? It doesn't make any sense at all. In 1958, a leaked Air Force document, and that's very important, a leaked Air Force document showed that the U.S. government considered what happened to be a UFO encounter. That is very telling. There was no mention of the C-37 in this leaked document, and it quoted these words from a radar observer who had been there. And that radar observer said, It seems incredible, but the blip apparently just swallowed our F-89 and the two pilots. Now pay very close attention to that wording. There was not collision, not interception, not destroyed, but swallowed it. And again, it was listed, classified, but it was listed as a UFO encounter. Neither of the men were ever seen again, nor has the plane ever been found. Now, I get the fact that it was the Great Lakes, and if it went into the Great Lakes, it'd be very hard to find. But they're finding stuff in the Great Lakes 
more and more as the years go on, and yet there is no sign of the wreckage from back then or now. It's a really interesting one, and again, sadly, two men lost their lives searching for and apparently intercepting a UFO. Okay, next up we have Captain Thomas Mantell. He was a 25-year-old pilot in the Kentucky Air National Guard. Now, he crashed and died on January 7, 1948, in his F-51. Now, this was while pursuing a supposed UFO. Mantell was an experienced airman who had seen considerable action as a World War II pilot, and that's going to be important in a little bit. The circumstances leading up to this crash have been a matter of dispute, and I mean that from story to story and document to document. The two pilots flying with Mantell were unable to clearly identify the object that was under pursuit, so here's where the details matter. The first odd detail is that Mantell, in one of his last radio transmissions, called the UFO a metallic object of tremendous size. Remember that. Now, he's an experienced pilot who saw something huge and metallic. The official Air Force line was that he saw Venus. That's it. Nothing more or less. That's the official Air Force line. So, obviously, that's BS, so we can forget about that completely. Again, he's an experienced pilot who saw something metallic of tremendous size. That doesn't sound like Venus, even on the best nights. So now here's where the declassified documents come in. Declassified documents eventually disclosed that the Navy had been conducting secret balloon experiments as part of its Skyhook project, which sought to measure radiation levels in the upper atmosphere. And just for full disclosure for you guys and the skeptics alike, some of these balloons reached 30 meters in diameter, or 100 feet in diameter. So these were big. They were huge. They were silver. As Mentel pursued what he apparently thought was a spaceship, he had foolishly ascended to 25,000 feet. Now, according to the declassified documents, that was way too high. But the odd thing here is that the F-5s had a maximum ceiling of 50,000 feet, twice as much and routinely flew at 36,000 feet. So the plane should not have had any issues with this altitude. Now, I looked into the planes, I looked into everything, because I wanted to find out if 25,000 feet was too high. And again, apparently it was very routine, and not too high for these planes at all. Now, this same document goes on to say that he blacked out from a lack of oxygen, his F-51 spun out of control and crash-landed in the front lawn of a farmhouse near Franklin, Kentucky. And that has been verified. The plane did spin out of the sky and crash near a farmhouse. That's all true. And yes, it is true that Skyhook Project was happening in the area. So, there is a good chance that he was probably chasing the balloon. And sadly, something happened, whether it was pilot error or mechanical error. Now, the reason I'm adding this one in is that there are dozens of websites that post this is 100% proof a UFO shot down a military jet. Now, even though some of the details are sketchy at best, they're all plausible and appears, to me anyway, there was probably no UFO involved. But again, just from the sheer amount of information and stories on the internet about this story... They all link it, not all, but 99.9% .9 of them link it to a UFO that shot down a military plane. So I did want to include it on this episode. Again, in my opinion, 
He probably was chasing the skyhook balloon, and something just sadly happened to him. Now, next up, we have a fairly famous story. That's another one of these fairly famous stories that you might have heard, but you might not have, so I wanted to include it on this list because it's a prime example of what this edition is all about. It became known as the Manissus UFO Incident, a Super Caravelle commercial flight flown by the airliner TAE was forced to make an emergency landing at Valencia, Spain on November 11, 1979, after taking evasive action to avoid colliding with a UFO. Now, a jet fighter was scrambled right after the incident from a nearby Spanish Air Force base. It was reported to made a brief visual contact, and it described it as a short, cone-shaped object with changing colors. Now, again, a flying physical object that was seen by dozens of people Yet, when the official story came out, the Spanish Air Force said that both the commercial airliner as well as the jet fighter had mistaken, quote, flashes emitted from a distant chemical industry complex, as well as some stars and planets. Again, these official stories are such BS. Dozens of people saw it, two pilots at the very least saw it, and they described it as a short, cone-shaped object with changing colors. I'm sorry, but no commercial pilot is going to take emergency procedures to avoid objects on the ground or some stars and planets. It doesn't happen. It's ridiculous. Now, I get there are many people that are flying that see something, and it does turn out to be Venus or Mars or whatever, but they're not taking evasive maneuvers from Venus or Mars. They're just mistakenly spotting a bright object and not knowing what it is. Now, for this story, thankfully, the plane landed and everyone was accounted for. So this one kind of had a happy ending. No one died, but it was a very weird UFO encounter seen by dozens of people. Next up, thankfully, there was no one hurt or killed in this one. And in fact, no one disappeared, but it's a very good example of an expert UFO encounter. So I wanted to add it. And this story takes place on October 1st, 1948, when George F. Gorman, who was a pilot in North Dakota's National Guard, was flying at night over was flying at night over Fargo, North Dakota. While flying, he spotted what he later described as an object with a blinking light. That's it, just an object with a blinking light. The only other authorized aircraft in that region was supposed to be a Piper Cub, which if you don't know, it's a very small airplane. Now, Gorman followed and closed in on the UFO. When he could get a good look at it, he said it resembled a ball of light that grew brighter and accelerated as he got near it. In a later sworn statement to investigators, Gorman said, I am convinced there was definite thought behind its maneuvers. I'm further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid but not immediate, and although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve. When I attempted to turn with the object, I blacked out temporarily due to excessive speed. He went on to say, I'm in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe that there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the object and remain conscious. The object was not only able to outturn and outspeed my aircraft, but was able to attain a far steeper climb and was able to maintain a constant rate of climb 
far in excess of my aircraft. And remember, his was not some commercial aircraft. This was the National Guard's military-grade aircraft. So he wasn't chasing swamp gas. He wasn't chasing Venus. This thing turned and accelerated. Whatever it was, it was able to outmaneuver him easily. Now, nothing we had built back then would even come close to the description or the speed of this one. So as far as I'm concerned, this one is a true UFO encounter. An experienced pilot who got close to it and saw the object he was chasing and rationally and scientifically explained the maneuvers of what he was chasing. Let's continue on with another one where a pilot seeing something he could not explain. On November 16, 1986, a Japan Airlines cargo jumbo plane reported three unidentified flying objects while flying over Alaska. During an investigation carried out by the FAA, the pilot was reported to have said he saw two small lights measuring no more than eight feet across. He said that the third, larger light was also visible on the craft. And that's about it we have for that one. Again, no one disappeared or died, but... I wanted to add that one because it's another one where there's nothing matching its description that it could have been. Again, it was a professional pilot who saw something that was not swamp gas, was not Venus. Now for a little debunking. This next one is fake. Stop spreading it as something that happened. It didn't happen. From what I can figure out, it seems to originate based on the first episode called Ringstone Round of the British sci-fi TV series, Quartermass. It's not real. Very quickly, I figured out it wasn't real, but I wanted to add it on here because, again, it makes the rounds online like crazy. So here you go. In August 1971, a group of hippies decided to camp out at Stonehenge. And I don't mean near, I mean in Stonehenge. Which, surprisingly, was still allowed back. And that part is real. It's bizarre to think that back then you could just camp inside one of the most mysterious man-made places on Earth. In fact, if you Google Stonehenge 1970s, you might want to you might not want to do it at work because I can't remember. Someone might be naked. I can't recall. But if you Google Stonehenge 1970s, there are tons of hippies inside the Stonehenge circle. Think about Stonehenge. Now imagine a bunch of dirty, smelly hippies inside that circle. It would be like sleeping inside the Great Pyramid. It was allowed, and it's bizarre. So, back to the BS story. They went there to camp out and experience, quote, the spiritual vibrations which happened at Stonehenge. Around 8 p.m., they pitched a number of tents and got the party underway. By 1.50 a.m., 1.50 a.m., the sky was getting darker, there was a sudden flash of lightning, and a storm manifested itself without any warning. The hippies started scrambling and running for cover. The lightning struck trees in the vicinity. So let me stop you right there. You don't have to go any further than that sentence. You want to know why? There are no trees surrounding Stonehenge. Yet a ton of websites say this story is real and all of these things happened. No trees around Stonehenge. Back to the BS story. Okay, so uh, trees struck, or lightning struck the trees nearby, and it actually, lightning actually hit the huge stone of Stonehenge themselves. 
Now, let's pause here. Hippies camping and getting lit in Stonehenge? Sure, I'd buy that. A lightning storm hits? Sure, I'd buy that. But from here on out, uh, I'm going to say nope, because this is what supposedly happened next in the story. Randomly, a local policeman was on patrol in the area at 2 a.m. just when this went down, and he observed that the stones were bathed in an eerie blue light. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, a farmer who was outdoors at this time, again, 2 a.m. near Stonehenge, so what the hell was he farming? Anyhow, he confirmed the policeman's story. Both witnesses looked on, the lights became so intense that they had to avert their eyes. Then, a bunch of screams came from the middle of Stonehenge, and both the policeman and the farmer ran towards Stonehenge to see if they could help. However, when they got there, they were shocked to discover that nothing remained except a few shattered tent pegs and the extinguished remains of their campfire. The tents and the hippies were nowhere to be seen. They were never seen again. Dun, dun, dun. For example, the names of the missing people are given as Julia Ashton, Lucas Adams, Sherry Wilson Jr., and they keep going on and on and again. There were also copies of this one guy, this one hippies. His name was uh, Daniel Wilson. Apparently, there are copies of Daniel Wilson's journal online leading up to the day of the disappearance. The journal was alleged to have been found several kilometers away from Stonehenge after the event. Hey, fun little story, great little story, but with the littlest bit of research, I was able to debunk this one completely. So if you go to a website or listen to a podcast that says that this one is real, they're fake, they're crap, turn them off, delete them, whatever you got to do. Because, sorry guys, this one isn't real. I even went so far as to tweet to the police station where it supposedly took place, saying, is there any truth to this at all? And then when five minutes later I figured out that there's no trees around Stonehenge, these names come up as not missing, never existing, all sorts of stuff, I was like, ah crap, I wasted a tweet, but whatever. This one, not true guys. Now, as weird as that one was, and fake, this one you have to take with a grain of salt because the details vary a lot, but it does seem to be real, and it does seem to kind of be true. So, again, some of the details take with a grain of salt, but here's what I could find that does seem to be true. 39-year-old Todd Sees, S-E-E-S, woke up early one morning and decided to go deer spotting on Montour Ridge, which is a mountain range behind his home in Point Township, Northumberland County. Now here's what's known. He leaves his home at 5 a.m. and tells his wife he'll be back by noon. We know he drives his ATV up a tree break where a power line goes off in that direction. So basically the power lines are splitting through the woods and going off. He's following those power lines in that direction. When he fails to return by the appointed time, Again, noon. His wife grows concerned and calls the police. Now, it's only been a few hours, so I'm not sure how the police got involved so quickly. But, anyhow, that's what happened, supposedly. Maybe it's a small town. I don't know. But, anyhow, sometime shortly after this, C's son finds his father's ATV abandoned at the top of the ridge 
two miles from their house. By 2.30, a large search team has been mobilized. Again, odd, but again, maybe since it's a small town, the police act quicker than in large cities. Maybe they knew Todd sees, and this was very bizarre. Uh, maybe the police knew Todd sees and knew that he's always back by noon, and this is just too bizarre, so they have to investigate it. I don't know, but anyhow, the police search around the ATV and can find no footprints leading away from the ATV and no scent for their search dogs to track. So, as hazy as I am with those details, it's about to get hazier. Because it seems like that same day, over 200 volunteers and rescue personnel started searching the immediate area, and they did it on foot and with dogs. Also, skin divers search a nearby pond, and others scour a six-mile radius for any sign of the man. So again, same day, missing, I get that, it's weird. But all of a sudden, 200 people are involved in skin divers and more dogs. It just seems so sketchy. But day one ends with C's still missing. So again, all of this happens on the first day. See why I'm saying it's sketchy? But remember, first day. Now, I, I looked into this. It does appear that Todd C's is real or was real and really died in an odd way. So I'm going to continue on with this story. He's been gone one day. They did a huge search party. No one could find anything, not in the pound, not anywhere. The search party continues throughout the following day, day two, and around 8 p.m. on the second night, someone spots a patch of white in the woods near the pond. The odd thing is, it's only 150 yards from the C's residence. Local firemen cut a path through the heavy brush, and there, in dense bramble, they find the dead body of Todd C's. Now, witnesses described him as dressed only in his boxers and completely emaciated. After one day, he is completely emaciated and only in his boxers. No one from the family is ever called in to identify the body. And this seems kind of weird, but apparently, contrary to Pennsylvania law, the body is removed without a coroner present. Again, grain of salt on that. Now, Northumberland County Coroner James Kelly who is also a real person. I checked him out as well. Now, he conducts an immediate autopsy, but his results are inconclusive. Now, he says there is no significant external or internal injuries, so there is no clear cause of death. Supposedly, he eventually returns the body to the family in a sealed casket and strongly suggests they do not open it. A toxicology report released months later suggests cocaine toxicity as the probable cause of death odd doesn't explain some of the stuff but i guess it kind of explains why he maybe wandered off and why he stripped down but not the emaciated part so anyhow local police close the investigation they say okay cocaine toxicity done now as if this story isn't odd enough as is it's going to get a little bit odder because one of todd's boots was found 75 feet up in a tree by where he disappeared so I want you guys to go outside, throw a boot 75 feet up into a tree. Good luck with that one. There are even some reports online that say the branches above the ATV were broken as if something was pulled upward from the ATV and broke all of the branches. But it's not in every report, so I don't know about that detail, but it is in some of the reports. Another detail that seems to be in some of the reports were 
that on the morning in question, three nearby farmers and a fisherman on the Susquehanna, sure, on the Susquehanna River witnessed a disc-shaped UFO over Montour Ridge. And there is supposedly an anonymously filed, mistakenly dated report. Just when I say mistakenly dated, I mean it, it was the 30th, they were the 29th, you know, that kind of thing. Not that it was actually the 30th, but you know what I'm saying. It was mistakenly put as the wrong date. Now, this report was about the UFO over Montour Ridge. And it was submitted later in August 2002 to the National UFO Reporting Center. So, this one's a bizarre one for sure. I don't know what the hell happened to Todd C's in 48 hours that could account for all of that. There are other reports that the FBI were involved that they closed the case, that the FBI told the family they couldn't open the casket. There's a lot of really strange details, but again, I wanted to go for the stuff that seemed to be the most prevalent and could be provable. And that's basically the story of Todd C's, a very odd tale that sadly resulted in a man's death. Okay, from there, let's go back to March 4th, 1946. A man whose last name was Philho, F-I-L-H-O, was returning home from a day of fishing in Brazil's Titi River with his friend. Now, this was 1946. It was a small village, so electricity was not in his village yet, so it was pitch black as he rode home, dropped his friend off, continued his ride, and stopped at the cabin. Now, Philo's second cousin said, I'll tell you what I know about his horrible death. It was in 1946 during the carnival season. He went fishing in the nearby river, and he came home riding in his cart. His wife and his children went to the festivities. It was the dry season. There was no rain. When he got back, he stabled his horse and fed it some corn. He put the fish in a pot and heated some water with firewood to take a bath. It was then, according to the story, that Philha was suddenly struck by a beam of intensely hot light emanating from a glowing object above the cabin. Philo stated that he covered his face with his hands and collapsed to his knees. The burst lasted only a moment before vanishing completely. It was described as a beam of light, sort of yellow, and it appeared in his room. He said he felt his body burning and that his beard, while short, was burning. Panicked and unable to move his hands, again, they're covering his face, remember, Philho raised the door latch using his teeth and ran into the street barefoot since he never wore shoes. He ran screaming to his sister's Maria's house, which was near the church. He dropped on a bed and said he'd been burned. The police chief was called over there immediately. Philho said there was no one to blame for what happened because his attacker had been, quote, had not been of this world. One eyewitness to this said his flesh looked like meat that had been allowed to boil for a while. Philo was only burnt from the waist up with the exception of his hair on his head. Another witness said, When I got to Maria's house, I found Philo. He was in bed and having problems using his tongue. His skin, which was fair, was toasted, reddish, as if he had been roasted. His hands and his face had the worst burns. In fact, his hands were twisted. His hair didn't burn, nor did his feet, nor his clothing. He was only burnt from the waist up. His feet were torn up from running barefoot on the sharp rocks over to his sister's house, but that was a separate injury. Now, not surprisingly, Philo was taken over to the local hospital. He was admitted at once, and the doctors said they were unable to diagnose what had happened to him. A couple of the witnesses that night were interviewed in 1974, including a former army medic and orderly 
by the last name of Gomide. Now, Gomide apparently cared for Philho during his final agonizing hours. And he said that he did his best to comfort the swiftly deteriorating Philo, who seemed, in his eyes, to be decomposing while still alive. He went on to say that the fisherman's horrifying last hours were chunks of flesh sloughed off his arms, exposing portions of bone and tendon. And this also happened to Philo's face. His ears, his nose, lips, and eyelids peeled off. I know, disgusting. I'm sorry, I'm almost done. Ironically, his hair and clothes were said to have remained undamaged during the whole affair, and even more bizarrely, the man himself, Philho, was said to have been in no physical pain towards the end. Now, not surprisingly, Philo passed away, and his death was listed as cardiac failure. Nothing about everything melting off of him in the strange beam of light, but cardiac failure. Very bizarre one. I have no explanation of it. Again, you got to remember, this all took place in 1946. There was nothing that we would have had technologically that could do this to a man. But yet, something did. All right, this next one was sent to me by a listener, and I really hope you guys wanted me to debunk it because it's not real. It's the story of Bruno Borges. The story of Bruno Borges made headlines around the world after Bruno went missing in late March. Now, he was supposedly taken by aliens, and footage revealed that his bedroom had been covered from floor to ceiling with cryptic text. It was an empty bedroom. All of his stuff was gone, but there was this strange cryptic text everywhere. Then, news stories detailed how Borges had become obsessed with the occult and left behind 14 coded books prior to his disappearance plus all of his alien iconography that was found in the same spooky room. But remember, guys, this one is BS, but let's keep going. So, when he disappeared, everyone assumed one of two things happened. Alien abduction, or he was silenced by the government for what he knew about the aliens. Also, supposedly, he was either a time traveler or reincarnated because in a previous life, he was philosopher Giordano Bruno. So, you know how evidence is really telling if a case is real or not? You know, too much evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence could pretty much prove that it never happened, but too much evidence is also very conclusive as well. Because you got to remember, he left behind a little alien stuff, a little occult stuff, a little reincarnation. It was so scattershot, though, a little, little occult, a little reincarnation, a little alien it's so scattershot that it doesn't, it's not cohesive evidence. In fact, if anything, it looks fishy as hell. Well, not surprisingly, recently authorities in Brazil executed a search warrant at the home of his friend, Marcelo, and they recovered a pair of contracts, one of which was taken to a notary by Borges on the day of his disappearance. And they detail a plan for his books to be published and for a percentage of the proceeds to go to to his friend Ferreira, and to two other individuals. Also, when police searched one of their homes, they found Borges's furniture, which they believe had been taken there in order to allow his bedroom to be seen as barren in the footage to make it more eerie and spooky. Police subsequently charged Ferreira for lying to authorities since he claimed to have last seen Borges on March 26th, but had actually gone with them to the notary on the 27th. This story fell apart so quickly. And surprisingly to no one, 
Borges showed back up months later saying he just went on a vacation or a vision quest and that nothing mysterious happened to him at all. It's a failed marketing ploy to sell his BS books. So, no, he doesn't have a connection to the occult. No connection to aliens or ancient philosophers. He's a failed writer that failed at trying to do a publicity stunt for an intriguing story. The end. Sorry, guys. Again, not real. And I believe with that one, that's two debunks, but a whole lot of stuff that I couldn't explain. Some people that died, some people that melted, some people that disappeared. A lot of weird stuff in these. So I'm hoping you guys liked this one. It was a little bit different. I hope you guys liked it. Once again, please join us on Patreon. I'm going to have a lot of fun on there, I hope. I hope you guys will too. I'm going to send out stickers through there and... All sorts of stuff. There's going to be a lot of... Also, speaking of Patreon, if there's a reward that you guys would like, like if you said, well, if you did this for 20 bucks, maybe I'd do that. I don't know. It depends on what it is and how creepy it is. But if it's not creepy, I'm more than happy to do it. I would like to do stuff that engages us more and more, more and more off Facebook. Not that Facebook is bad. I love chatting with all you guys on Facebook, but I want a place where we can all get together and chat. And I think Patreon might be that place. But if you don't want to go to Patreon, that's cool. Please find me on Facebook. Say hi. I love hearing from all you guys. I hope you guys have some great stories for me coming up because I want another listener ghost story. So if you got one, now's the time to start submitting them. I want to hear from you guys about your ghost stories. And let me open it up a little bit more. It doesn't have to be a ghost story. It could be a UFO story. It could be a paranormal story. It could be you went and got your tarot cards read and what they told you turned out to be true. You had a dream and it was a vision of the future and that turned out to be true. If it's true, I want to hear it. If it's good, I want to tell it. If it's really good, maybe I'll have you guys on to tell it. I keep saying I'm going to do that. I would really like to do that one for you guys. But once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. (laughs) 